Welcome to the 1 million euro stories. I am Eris. I shine a light on female founders who raise capital, especially a half million euros and up. I am welcoming our guests to the studio. Welcome. Introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Nanedi and I'm the co-founder of Brastorn. Um, so Brastorn is a startup based in Botswana, um, but we're currently operational in DRC um, in Cameroon and soon to be in Guinea. And what we do is simple, we connect the unconnected. So we enable underserved rural populations to access the internet without data bundles or smartphones. It sounds really interesting because, you know, I'm here in the West and I'm <laughs> thinking about the internet. So can you elaborate a little bit more about what need is currently there, what we don't have here and, uh, and how you came up with it to start there? All right. So, um, you know, internet in Africa is quite different, like you say, from the Western world. Um, many people who use mobile devices, I think about 77% um, would like to connect to the advantages that come with being connected and being um, on the internet. But unfortunately, what you find is that these people use feature phones, so they don't use smartphones, um, which sort of excludes them from being able to interact with the internet. So <clears throat> what you find is an environment that the vast majority of Africans um, may have mobile devices, but simply can't connect to the internet. Um, and you know, this was a very um, important you know, problem for us to solve because we know the advantages of being connected. We know that people use the internet to connect with each other, to access information on opportunities and to generally improve their livelihoods. And there's so many people who have been excluded in that sense. And we sort of made it our mission to try and address that digital gap. Um, you know, recognizing that the internet has become a necessity um, as well as a human right, right? So um, that's that's our mission. That's what we're focusing on and that's what we're solving for. And in what way can you solve it? Because when I see the, the mobile devices, when you don't have internet on it, it's just excludes, like you said. It's like done if you don't have like internet on your phone. So how do you then include them in that internet? So what we do is, you know, we meet them right where they are, and that's on their feature phones, right? Um, so we kind of convert um, feature phones into um, sort of smartphones. So we take, we like to say we turn dumb phones into smartphones. Um, so we use technologies that work on feature phones, simple um, technologies that may be seen as archaic, like um, SMS and USSD. And we sort of connect um, the user to the internet um, using those technologies. So what would happen, for example, is someone can access Wikipedia on our platform through USSD. USSD is traditionally used for mobile money um, solutions in Africa um, and you know, airtime top-ups. So what we did was we just created a unique use case around it to enable access to the internet. So a person would actually get on Wikipedia um, through our service, we would dump down the information and then um, we relate back to their feature phones. So we sort of act as a bridge 
to some internet sites, um, as well as accessing information, like really helpful information ranging from agriculture um, to health or legal advice. Um, and then we also have embedded a social community on the same technology where people can chat and communicate in a very affordable way compared to um, you know, having to purchase data or making phone calls. They can chat and interact with each other on USSD. Um, and they can also interact with the marketplace, especially the farmers. Well, this one is more for our um, agriculture component that focuses on, on you know, connecting farmers and you know, building a marketplace for them so they can in, you know, improve their livelihoods and earn income um, through our marketplace. So in, essentially, we just basically created a platform that allows us to meet feature phone users where they are, and we sort of act as the bridge between them and um, the access to information, markets, and internet-based websites. And what was that point, you know, because you're in Africa, you, you see that problem, that you were thinking about really solving it? Sorry, I, I couldn't get um, Because this is a problem in Africa with the internet and the mobile phones. So when was that moment as you as an entrepreneur that you that you realized you wanted to solve this problem? Um, so I have a background working in development, um, you know, in, in NGOs and in mobile for development. And my co-founder does as well, though he has a more technical background um, than I do and in banking. And, you know, that work had led us to projects that, you know, focused more on mobile for development. And we were sort of exposed to the opportunities that were there in this space. So at the time, it was more simple solutions, like, for example, receiving HIV test results on SMS. But then we saw that um, we could actually create, you know, different use cases for this. You know, and we started brainstorming on um, a potential product that we could build. At the time, we were focusing more on agriculture. Um, so, so we started just going through, you know, brainstorming and designing um, a product um, on SMS and on USSD on how farmers can, um, you know, receive information and, you know, you know, participate in a mobile community with each other. So I think it started with our previous um, experience in the space. Um, and then we sort of just started thinking more outside of the box and, um, you know, thinking of a business case that makes sense while also having um, impact. Mm -hmm. And how did you move then from there? So when you were testing out those business cases, you were looking at it and what came out of it? Um, I think what also made it easier for us is our parents are both farmers. So in Botswana, um, the vast majority of families are into agriculture and farming. Um, so we have a very close <laughs> experience with what life looks like for the average African farmer um, and what farm, farms are like and, um, you know, what those nuances are like. And we were able to identify, you know, issues with accessing information. Like for example, if um, my dad who's a farmer wants to get like the latest, um, you know, updates on how to improve his crops, he would have to drive to the nearest agriculture or travel to the nearest agricultural post. He couldn't be able to access that information on his phone, therefore saving him money to go and make that trip. Um, so it's little issues like this <clears throat> that we started noticing while we were building out the solution and it kind of helped us refine um, our app more. So I'd say 
things that, you know, experiences that we would see with the people around us in our environment helped us shape the product better and better over the years. Yeah, because it's really important to, to talk to the customers, to talk to the people who you're building it for. And when it's so close, it's like an easy access to ask your mom or your dad how things are going, how they're accessing things. And, and if there are so many farmers around, um, did you also talk to other farmers around your area? Yeah, you know, I the one thing that I always um, tell my team is that we don't have to look too far to find data, especially because what you find is your family members are actually potential users, right? So you can, you know, they can they actually fit into um, your personas for the most part. So you find like your friends, your cousins, your families, and those are people that it's very easy to get data from, and it's pretty much free data. Um, and, and, you know, engaging with them in terms of getting more information for you to refine the product. So, yeah, we started with our parents, we started with our aunts and our friends, um, just people just that were easily accessible for us. And we were consulting them as we were building out the product. And when did that moment come for you that you that you both, you, because you talked about your co-founder, felt that you want to pursue this uh, even more? Um, I think at the time when we were building this out, we realized that there was this um, a huge opportunity around agriculture in Africa and a huge movement towards that. There were a lot of um, funding opportunities and partners looking forward to see what they can do in this space. Um, and so because we're mobile technology driven, um, the, the we, we work directly with mobile network operators because um, our users have to access our platform on the mobile network operators um, network, right? So we have to have them as partners. And at the time when we were approaching them, it was um, the right time because they had a very big interest and strategic direction towards moving towards agriculture um, and that having uh, that being a focus area for them. Um, so um, we pitched our solution to them. It took a really long time for them to, to come on board. I think we did like three years of consistently pushing them until we finally signed our contract with them. So I think it's just about, you know, being there at the right time, also being really patient and being very tenacious and not giving up. Um, that, that has helped us in the long run. Because if I hear like three years, that has been a journey to, uh, you know, to talk to them, to pursue them. So how was it for you to, um, when things were not working out and you were hoping for more, how did you still keep on going with what you were wanting to do? Um, I think for us, um, my, my co-founder and I really pushed each other. So he has certain strengths and I have certain strengths. And one of his strengths is that he's just really, really very tenacious. So <laughs> um, and much more tenacious than I am. <laughs> yeah. He never gives up. So um, his um, focus and drive also inspired me. Um, and, you know, when he would almost give up, which was rare, I would then still have the energy to, to, to keep pushing him, to keep going. And over and beyond that, um, the partners and friends that we were able to build who were really um, rooting for us, um, who have been our friends for over, you know, for many years now, um, you know, knowing that we have people who believe in you so much 
and I inspired what you do also just keeps you going and you kind of feel like I can't disappoint them like they are really really buying into what we're doing so it kind of um, <clears throat> puts a lot of responsibility um, in terms of being focused and being motivated and, and making it work and I think also what makes it um, what you know gives us um, so much drive is seeing the opportunity we, we saw the opportunity we had our eyes on the prize and we really believed in what we are doing um, people usually ask us I've heard people ask us um, what would you guys do if Braston fails <laughs> and we usually say we actually don't have a plan b like this has to work and that's the, <laughs> that's the mindset that we have had and has carried us through and has forced us to push because we literally don't have a plan b like we have to make it work <laughs> so funny to hear you know like what is your plan b we have not it's going to work <laughs> Yeah, we get, we get our, our team asks us that sometimes. They're like, so if you guys weren't doing Brastorn, what else would you be doing? And we always give the same answer. And they'll ask him and ask me individually and get the same answer. Like, this has to work. There is no, there's no other option. Well, that's a good sign that you both give the same answer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And I was just thinking, like, because when you are going to build something, I think it's always really exciting when you have, you see a problem and you, you know, you have the solution and you want to build. How did it go with the money? Did you already have some money to build or how did the journey go for you? Um, we, we didn't have money to build. We had to be very um, creative about how we approached our partners um, because we, we didn't have money. We had to bootstrap and we had to be really resourceful. Um, so we had to have a, uh, a really strong, um, what's the word? A strong value proposition because our key partner is the mobile network operator. Um, and so when we approach them, um, we basically say, okay, take a chance on us. Let's just try this and see what works. And at no cost to you, um, we're just gonna, it's, it's easy to implement and we just launch it. And then if you see the result and you're interested in it, then we can have the conversation about money. Um, so that kind of made it easier for us to get in with them because um, it reduced their level of risk. It made them feel like, okay, we have nothing to lose if this doesn't work. Um, <laughs> so it just, it just meant just we needed to just be smart about our pitch. Um, and then in the early years when we weren't, making anything at all we were relying on like small projects you know support from family here and there until we finally made our first revenues um th those three years after we signed the contract with the the telco and for how much money did you bootstrap in the beginning um so it's i think it was around maybe about 10 to twenty thousand dollars if we were to quantify it Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you need to start somewhere. Always you start yeah. somewhere with money exactly. and just you know to bootstrap it. Yeah. And did you raise it from friends and family uh, the money? Um, no, we didn't raise from friends um, and family. Our friends and family didn't have that much to give. Um, <clears throat> so what we did, um, like I mentioned, we. We worked on a few projects um, here and there. 
to try and raise money for the business. Um, we actually ran a little printing shop at some point <laughs> just to keep the lights on and stuff like that. So we had to, you know, be very creative and do little things here and there, sell this, sell that, um, to raise the money that we needed to just stay afloat until um, we actually earn our first proper revenues. Yeah, so because it's time, been really, yeah. Oh, I think at the time, there was only four of us. Um, so my co-founder and I, and just two other employees, <laughs> which it was really difficult to, to pay because we didn't have the money to pay them, but they really believed in the vision and the growth opportunities. And we were lucky that they were willing to work with us for that period. Oh, because you didn't have enough money to pay them for their services. So. Yeah, 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 exactly. So they must be then really felt motivated and aligned with the product to do that. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So it was something, something bigger than money drove them to, to work with us. Yeah, I always think that's a really beautiful case because when you have people who are committed and seeing your vision like you do, I mean, you can do amazing things with that. Exactly, exactly. And then after a while, you just started making revenue when you signed the contract with the, with the mobile devices. And was there any point that you needed to raise capital? Um, yeah, so we launched um, the product and it performed really well, like the first uh, month of launch and it surpassed our expectations. And since that first month of launching and generating revenues, we had been cash positive. It was just like, I think it really did solve a desperate need and people were really subscribing for our products. Um, <clears throat> so <clears throat> we were quite sustainable um, and, until we got to a point where, okay, we saw that this works in Botswana, but we want to expand into other countries. And um, our mobile network operator partner is Orange um, and Orange really saw the value and we ended up um, you know, we were able to build, um, to establish a group relationship with them, um, which facilitates scale into the different markets in Africa. Um, so we had a good a group um, contract with them um, and the need to scale became much more. And, much more. Um, and then we decided that, okay, I think we can't scale from our revenues. We would be like really limited in what we can do. Um, so we need a bit of a cash injection that allows us to hire the right people, build out our technology more, go into these countries um, and establish those relationships, even with other mobile network operators as well. Um, and that was going to take um, quite some, some money. Um, and we realized that, okay, I think it's time now for us to, to raising. Um, but our journey with raising was quite interesting. Um, it wasn't the typical, you know, you raise and like, it wasn't the typical story. Um, what happened for us is we realized, we, we raised and then we realized that we weren't really ready to raise um, because we weren't in a very desperate position. Um, we found it better for us to prove our model in maybe like two or three more markets so that we raise at a valuation that made more sense. Um, and, and so we, we, we decided to take a step back and really reflect on, is this the time to raise or not? And we had a meeting with our board and we collectively decided that maybe not now, um, but what we can do now is raise like non-dilutive types of instruments. So like debt or um, grants 
and prize money and stuff like that, um, which we had been focusing on um, and we're doing for now up until um, we meet the target that we're looking at. And then um, after we prove our model in the, in the few more countries, then we raise um, capital and we go on a proper um, fundraising campaign. Mm. So for the beginning now, how much did you raise for this moment? Um, so up until now, we've raised about $825,000 um, in, in just these non-dilutive instruments. $825,000. Well, still an amount of money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can say it's really... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, it's still an amount of money. I'm just still like, my, my head is still sinking it in for a second. I'm like, well... <laughs> <laughs> what, what I found really interesting in your journey, I love the way you talked about the launch. When you talked about you launched your product and a lot of people were subscribing. Do you remember how many people subscribed in the beginning? Yeah, so in the first month, we got like, I think it was about 100,000 in the first month. Ah, yeah. That really that shocked us. <laughs> um, it was really, really, really shocking. Um, I mean, it, it surpassed our expectations. Yeah. And it was really exciting. <laughs> yeah, because 100,000 in the first month is like people jumping in and acknowledging that they need this solution. Exactly. And I think also because it was new and unique, there wasn't anything quite like it at the time. Um, and, and yeah, it solved the needs that they were having and it sort of just grew organically um, over the years. Yeah, and how many users have you got now at this moment? So now um, we have about 2 million total users. Um, this is uh, comprises of the Botswana market as well as um, Cameroon and the DRC. The DRC. So the funny thing is, I haven't heard it before because you said it so beautifully that, you know, when you were raising capital, you realized it was not the timing after you had some conversation. And was that because they gave you a low evaluation for the company? Um, I think we, I think maybe we, the way we did it, we did it a bit um, I think we were a bit pressurized. <laughs> we did it out of pressure um, without being thoughtful, as thoughtful as we needed to be. We just thought, okay, let's just do it. But we didn't think about it and really digest what that meant and if we were ready to do it. And what happens is if you if you fundraise when you're not 100% ready, investors can pick that too. Um, <laughs> they can also pick that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> where you know you're fundraising you're not fully into it and you're meeting all these investors and you know for them to have that first initial um, conversation with you it means that they are generally interested in exploring the opportunity but then when it seems like you're a bit you know on edge they also do pick that and you end up finding that you know you kind of I wouldn't say it was a, a waste of time because it was a learning experience for us um, because it, it allowed us to learn that you have to do this once you really are ready and you really understand what it means for you. Yeah, I think that's really clear because when you're not really 
all into that and you just like half into it, everything is picked up, of course, by the investors, how you're feeling and uh, the energy you're portraying in that moment as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think also, um, I think the other challenge for us is we, because we were, were quite um, intentional about who would want to be um, our investors. We want people that it's not just about the money, but they really actually are like, they work with us as partners. So they're able to facilitate our scale, to build our network, um, to build capacity. So we kind of see it as a marriage. Um, and I think in some instances, some of the um, investors we were meeting, we weren't aligned in that way. Um, and, you know, so I think that also, you know, it was a challenge of like finding the right or like the perfect fit in terms of um, a partner. Yeah, because it's, of course, you need money, but of course you want it to be aligned with your purpose and the things you're doing. Uh, and that is in the same line. Um, but it also says something about how you're fundraising because sometimes you can be desperate and you still want that money and put sometimes your your own values aside. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I see that happens a lot and it's really sad. <laughs> um, I know there was this one particular investor that reached out to us and the way that they did things was, I would say, shady. <laughs> um, so what they did is they have like um, an accelerator program and it wasn't clear um, what they were what what they wanted to invest and how they're going about it and what they do is like they push or pressurize startups um, without being very clear into signing a um, like a shareholders agreement that gives them shares and people that go into that program give away their shares for like next to nothing <laughs> you know um, and so I felt sad that there are some startups that are quite desperate and would fall into this trap um, and I think my advice would be for people to focus on building your business model, um, focus on building a business model that's really strong, focus on building your business and, you know, making it or growing it to the point of ge revenue generation um, so that you are, for your approach funders and you start, you know, and investors and you start fundraising, you're in a, in a better position and you can actually make choices that benefit you um, and, you know, instead of drag you down the wrong hole. I think I find that a lot of founders focus so much on raising and less on the actual business. And because um, we're in, I mean, we're based in Botswana and not a lot of funding comes to Botswana, we had to find creative ways to making the business work first before seeking funding. And I think naturally that is how business is supposed to work. It's supposed to be building a business, a business that's sustainable. And then you go look for funding to grow it. And I think, you know, most startups I've seen really do it the other way around. They look for the funds first and then worry about the business later. And then it ends up just becoming a disaster. Um, so I would just advise people to focus on reiterating their business model and, and building the business model first. Yeah. It's good that you say so, because I've come that across a lot of times. That's why I asked you about the values and your company, because if you have a business model that works, it's easier and you make revenue to make different choices. 
um, and you're not desperate for money. I think that is also a really big thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, you said that you then, you know, instead of raising capital, you have raised grants and debts and other in other forms for $825,000. Um, so how is it now going with Brastrone? Where are you at now with the product and everything is happening? Um, so through these, um, you know, the, the grants and the prize money and um, debt, we've been able to build really strong networks um, and work with amazing people who really want us to grow and support our scale. Um, so, for example, some of those partners include Google, include MIT, um, Orange, uh, CTA, just, you know, various organizations, Stanford Seed, and they are always willing to really help us grow the business and support us. And that has really helped, you know, build our capacity in so many ways, um, you know, improved our, you know, teams of skills and, you know, insights and learnings. And, um has really helped, you know, with like product ideas, product management to help us build out our products more. So I think over and beyond the money, these partnerships have really, really helped us um, expand our network and, um, you know, even just help us grow into the other countries that we need to be in. So right now we're focusing heavily on, on scaling, on scaling into new markets. And if you look at, um, because it's you and your co-founder? Mm -hmm. The two of you. And how does your team look like that you're working with at the current moment? Um, so we have around 30 to 40 team members. Um, the number fluctuates because some of them are part-time um, and they work on, a, on our contact center. So we also have a contact center and they support that. Um, vast majority of our team are women. I think about 55 to 60% are women. Um, and yeah, it's just a team of young people. 100% is our youth. And um, yeah, just excited, very energized and focused on our mission and, you know, really buy into the vision and they're a great group of young people to work um, with. Like they've, they're amazing. We have a really, really strong team. Um, it took us some time to get it right. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and we had to be very thoughtful and intentional about that. But I think we have gotten to a good place. We've been able to achieve so many good things together. So you said 30 people in the team. Uh, yeah, yes. It's 30 yeah. core staff and then about 10 um, part-time. Yeah. So did you also hire technical people as well? Yes, yes, we did. Mm -hmm. To build the product. Yeah. And yeah. if you look at your journey and you look back, what was the for you the most challenging thing? Um, my journey in, sorry? Uh, in in Brostone and building it and... <laughs> what was for you would you say like oh this was the most challenging thing for me doing this uh, entrepreneurial journey I think the most uh, personally for me the most challenging thing was building the right team um, and people management um, that is because uh, you go from you know it's just the four of you and then you add more people and then you add more people and then you add more people and things change as you add more people um, and your priorities as well in terms of you know being a leader also changes over the you know the years and over the number of people you manage so when there's just four of you you find that you tend to be very operational you're doing everything you're wearing different hats 
then new people come and they have to wear some of the hats that you were wearing. So there's a transition between mm -hmm. learning how to let go and delegate um, and then also working through performance issues and cultural issues and stuff like that. And it was blood, sweat and tears because we have had to fire <laughs> um, a lot and, you know, higher fire, higher fire until we got the people that really understood the culture we're trying to build as a team, um, <clears throat> which is one about integrity, openness, um, impact, um, you know, uh, just, you know, grit and determination. And I think we finally got the formula right to a high extent, but it took a lot of reiteration for us to get here. Yeah. And if you look at um, the successes, do you celebrate success? Yes, we do. We do celebrate success. Um, but we usually celebrate our successes at our year end. <laughs> So we will have like, you know, um, like a retreat or we'll travel as a team for us to success, I mean, to um, celebrate our, our successes over the year and to just get the team to just take a breather because the team really works really hard and they are constantly just at it, constantly at it. And we tend to suffer a lot from burnout. <laughs> as a team so we we try to to have you know you know these team building and retreats to try and just help us just usa and refresh um and we also use them as opportunities to celebrate our wins yeah because when you know when you're doing so much and trying to make everything work and go on you need this moment of a pause to breathe to relax and also see um the things you actually done because those you know to-do lists never stops in a way yeah exactly exactly um and and one thing um that i had to appreciate and learn is um most founders really struggle with um burnout mm -hmm. and um, one of the one of the programs that we've been through i actually went through coaching to manage burnout and um, <laughs> and what you find is, um, you know, some of the leading causes are just not being, not being able to just set those boundaries and say no, um, and just be protective over your time, and also not delegating enough and empowering your team enough. Um, so we've sort of just, you know, made it a norm that okay, founders and leaderships just be burned out all the time. But the truth is that you can't be as effective as you need to be if you're always burnt out. And you have to be much more intentional about how to manage your time to, you know, incorporate things that, you know, help you manage your energy efficiently. Um, yeah, so that's, that's some of the stuff that we've been doing and we've been trying to also empower our teams to do. Yeah, that's a really good one because that coaching um, <laughs> then gives you more tools and more insights on how to cope with it because it just creeps in otherwise exactly exactly and i think it creeps yeah <laughs> yeah and the biggest struggle with founders is letting go learning to just let go because the business becomes your baby and here you are having to like let your put your baby in somebody else's hands <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's really difficult um but once you actually get yourself around to doing it you find that it really helps make the difference yeah, I can imagine that because 
in the beginning, you do everything yourself or with your co-founder and the two other people you had, and then it starts growing. You cannot have the same role as you had in the beginning. Exactly. And otherwise, you're like doing 20,000 things. You're, you cannot even sleep in that time, you know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you just have to learn to let go and trust your team. It's also a process. But once you do that, um, you become, you start focusing more on the 20% that makes the 80% of your business. Now you focus on the real things that need your attention, like where your business is going to go over the next 10 years. And, you know, like think like the evolution of your products and the business. And you start focusing on that and not focusing on more operational things yeah. because you're not trying to do everything. So it, it, it gives you up it gives you space to think and you need that space. You need that time to just sit and think about the future of your business. And you can't do that if you're burnt out and you're doing everything. No, no. Then your brain <laughs> is saying like, hold on, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to, in the last questions, what is, um, what are you looking now for, for Braston of the new things that are coming up where you think, oh, I'm that I'm really excited about. Okay, so again, expanding into new markets, really, we're expanding into Guinea, so I'm really excited about that. Uh, we're excited also about, um, you know, we have a new new products that we're developing um, that sort of are trans, as they sort of, um, they form as a transition from, um, you know, the unconnected, you know, basic feature phone type products to a more connected um, type of product. So it allows the user to transition online um, and sort of grows with them along that journey. So we're focusing more on that as well. Um, and yeah, so we have new products that we are working on, which is really exciting. And um, we also have um, new partnerships um, with new, um, really, really big partners. Um, and we're looking forward to implementing some of that work and is to be implemented this year. So that's also really, really exciting. I can't say much on the particular partnership because I'm not allowed to, to announce it. <laughs> um, no, but wait. <laughs> soon, soon you'll hear about it. <laughs> it was a huge win for us, a huge, huge win for us. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. Is there, is there at the end something you want to say to our listeners? Um, yeah, I would say thank you for listening to me today and um, just a word of encouragement to never give up and stay focused and, you know, just be tenacious in anything that you do. This was an episode of the One Million Euro Stories. There is a new world to unlock. Let's believe. Let's be bold. Let's be fierce. Let us open a new door. I am Aris from the One Million Euro Stories. Thank you for listening.
And if you want to make sure that you know when a new episode comes out from the 1 million euro stories, click on subscribe on your podcast app and you will be notified when a new episode comes out. Thank you for listening. And I will see you next time.